Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and the spiritual life through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world through lust. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to focus upon your word again this morning, that as we study, we come to such a greater understanding of who we are in Christ, what Christ has provided for us, and the significance of our new identity in him as members of the church age, the significance of this mystery, this previously unrevealed truth, that there is now no distinction in the body of Christ between Jew and Gentile, for we are all one and united in Christ, and how that should impact the way in which we conduct our lives and the orientation to our purpose in this church age. We pray as we continue to study this prayer of Paul's that we may come to understand the significance of it for our spiritual life, the way in which it helps us to see the stages of our spiritual growth and how we are to mature, that we can be useful servants of our Lord. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 3. We will look at verse 16, finish up some things there, and then go on to uh, the first part of verse 17. The focal point of that first phrase in verse 17 that Christ may make his home in you is so significant for us. So we are looking at Christ at home with us, coming to understand uh, the significance of that. So uh, we are... Something has disappeared from my stack. There we are. Okay. We are looking at these verses... The first three verses in this prayer that the Apostle Paul is taking to the Lord. And we have examined this saying that it begins for this reason. Now, whenever we see a statement like that, it's always important to understand why he is saying that. He's saying for this reason. What reason? Well, it's not the reason of what he says in uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, I mean through 13, uh, but it goes back to what he says in verses 11 to 22 in chapter 2. If you notice at the beginning of chapter 3, he says, for this reason, and then he sort of runs down a rabbit trail. It's a divinely designed rabbit trail. It's not an accident because in what he says in Ephesians 3, 2 uh, down through 13 is 
important for understanding, again, the significance, the centrality of this mystery doctrine, as it's been called. It is this previously unrevealed information about what God is doing in this church age. Things change radically when Jesus rose from the dead. With the completion of the plan of salvation, the basis was laid for God to establish a new spiritual entity. In the Old Testament, God had called forth the physical descendants of Israel through Abraham that through them he would bless the world spiritually. He was not setting aside that plan at all because of uh, the sin of Israel in rejecting the Messiah. It is a, he hit the pause button, as it were, because he's going to fulfill all of his promises, everything that is predicted in the Old Testament will come to pass as it was predicted, but he is calling forth a new entity where the distinction between Jew and Gentile is no longer a factor. And something new that we touched on uh, Thursday night in Bible class and that we touched on at the opening of uh, the message last Sunday on Resurrection Day is that we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That is the reason that we know that we have been saved for this newness of life. The resurrection focuses us on that newness of life. Other passages, for example, in Galatians chapter 3, tell us that that this identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection is the baptism by the Holy Spirit which has freed us from the tyranny of the sin nature. And so as Paul ends that opening section of Romans 6, he says, consider yourselves dead to sin, separated from its power. That's a new new way in which to look at our identity. There have been some in the course of the uh, church age who have in recent years said, oh, that's the key to the Christian life. It's, and they call it identification truth. It is, but it's not the key. It is important. It is central. There are other things. I don't know that there's one facet of the spiritual life that is the key to the spiritual life. I think it is multifaceted. All of these different things work together. Uh, We have to, those who emphasize the uh, identity truths often do so at the exclusion of some of these other things. One thing that they will uh, uh, distinguish themselves from is the importance of confession or cleansing. And that's because there have been some people who, in their emphasis on trying to restore people to an emphasis on confession, have made it sound like that's the key. And it is extremely important because we know from Scripture that, uh, for example, in the Old Testament says if we can consider or if we see sin in the life, in our life, that the Lord will not hear us. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Sin still separates us from that personal fellowship, that ongoing partnership walking by the Holy Spirit. And so we need to confess sin. At the pastor's conference last month, somebody asked a question about typology, which I think that they, 
that typology issue that he was talking about in Hebrews. He was a little off base. But it made me think, remember something, and that is in the Old Testament picture of worship in the tabernacle and in the temple, before worship could take place, before the enjoyment of all of the blessings of God could be uh, could be enjoyed, there had to be the cleansing of sin, pictured by the priest coming to the uh, labor. That was the first thing he would do. He'd wash his hands and wash his feet. And that's a picture of confession. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on. because, And that's the problem I think some people had with confession. They thought, oh, all I need to do is confess sin. No, because that denies a host of other commands in Scripture that we are to walk by the Holy Spirit, which is ongoing progression. We are to abide in Christ and he in us. That, again, pictures fellowship. We are to walk in the light. All of these picture what happens if you think about the what's going on in the temple. It all pictures what goes on after there's the initial cleansing of sin. And so all of our lives are to be an act of worship and obedience to God. And so that that is very, very important to under, understand all of that. But this mystery doctrine is critical because that relates to what is the significance, what is also the significance, let me put it that way, it's not exclusively it. The first is that we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Why? So that we are given a new identity. There's no distinction between Jew or Greek, male or female, bond or slave, because we are now all one in Christ. In the Old Testament dispensation under the law, there's a distinction that that only free males of a certain age can go into the tabernacle or into the temple. Women could not, slaves could not, Gentiles could not. That's why when Paul says, now these factors, whether you're male or female, is not a factor in who has access to God. Bond or slave has no factor in terms of your relationship with God, your access to God. And um, bond or slave, Jew or Gentile, male or female, bond or slave, Jew or Gentile has no factor. And as we look at chapter 2, which is the for this reason, in chapter 2, as pa- Paul explains the, how the barrier between God and man has been knocked down by the, uh, I mean, the barrier between Jew and Gentile has been uh, abolished by the death of Christ on the cross, so too the barrier between man and God has been removed. And then he concludes, for through him, we both have him being Christ, his work on the cross, We both have access by one spirit to the Father. That's emphasizing the role of the spirit in giving us access, access to God. So that is part of what we're looking at here in these three verses. As Paul starts, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That tells us that he is praying. He has a parenthetical thought. The Father is the one from whom the whole family, the whole patria in heaven and on earth is named because he is our creator. 
that, and this is introduces that first clause, first word that introduces the content, the main content of the prayer, that he would grant to you, or that uh, probably a little more precise translation, uh, that he may give to you, uh, expressing the purpose, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. So I've developed this model to help us understand the progression of thought in this prayer. Uh, there are some translations that will uh, insert wrongly a, the concept of, of and. For example, in uh, verse, uh, verses 16 and 17, uh, you might have a translation that would say that he would grant you, and then verse 17 begins, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts. But that's not what it says. There's no and in the verse. What you have in the verse is a result clause, a result word there in verse 17. So that's telling us that he's praying first, foremost, that we are to be strengthened with might through his spirit for the result that, and that's that's this um, uh, third step. So he prays to the Father. He prays that the Father would use the Holy Spirit to strengthen them in their spiritual life for the result that Christ would make his home in them. And this is what we have uh, looked at in the previous weeks. And then that is for an additional purpose so that we can begin to comprehend the immensity of Christ's love for us. So we then it drives us further as we think about the immensity, the infinitude, of Christ's love for us as exhibited on the cross with an eventual result, that's the long-term result, that we might be spiritually mature and reflect the love of Christ uh, in our lives. So this is how the progression develops. So in this prayer, he's praying that we are to be uh, to be strengthened and that this is being strengthened with my two different words emphasizing power, em- emphasizing ability, capability. They're extremely strong words. And then at the end, that this is done uh, in the inner man. So this word to be strengthened uh, that we have here is a word that is, uh, I don't always talk about the grammar. I'll put it there, but I only talk about it when it is significant to bring out something. This word is not used many times in the New Testament. It's used in the Greek of the Septuagint in order to uh, translate a variety of words related to being strong, be, having great courage, things of that nature. And it, But in the New Testament, it is always in the passive. So this is an aorist passive infinitive. Now, for those of you who are grammatically challenged, passive means that the uh, subject, which is the believer here, the Ephesian believer, is acted upon by something else that performs the action. They're receiving the action. So who's performing the action? God is performing the action. And when we look at this 
uh, in its various uses in the New Testament. It always has that passive idea, which means that God is the one who strengthens us. We cannot strengthen ourselves. The spiritual life is not pulling yourself up by your moral bootstraps so that you can show that somehow you are uh, uh, God has uh, enabled you to be moral. There are a lot of people in this world who are moral. There are people whose sin nature runs toward morality. Think about the Pharisees. They have their own self-righteousness. And what we find, even of those who are antinomian, who don't believe in any laws or any absolutes, they have their own set of tyrannical, legalistic absolutes. Just go to some Antifa rally sometime and say something that disagrees with their position and you'll be called a racist. See, they have, they are antinomian, but they are, they have their own self-righteous standards. And that's what we often see in the trends of history is that people will react to one set of standards and go to the opposite end, and then they will create their own alternate set of standards and become just as wickedly self-righteous about them as they thought the others were about theirs. So what we recognize here is this strengthening is provided exclusively by God. We don't do it ourselves. Now, that doesn't exclude us from responsibilities to walk with by the Spirit, to walk in the truth, to obey God, but it is in the strength and power of God the Holy Spirit as we walk by Him, recognizing that He's the one then who is producing the results uh, in our life. One of the ways this word is used is in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. It's the last phrase, be strong, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Now, here in this verse, there are actually four commands. And one reason I'm saying this is that I have heard recently that there are some um, probably pastors that I know, but I don't know that anybody in particular who, and this has always been a bit of a problem in the camp that emphasizes grace, who were saying, well, if you emphasize the obedience imperatives of Scripture, you're just legalistic. Well, that's not true. Because, A, that shows a misunderstanding of legalism. And number two, it immediately uh, cuts out hundreds of verses in the New Testament that have imperatives. The imperatives are commands of God to us, not to gain his favor, but they're commands that as a child of God, that we are to live a certain way. Just as I hope you had parents that uh, were not going to kick you out of the family or disinherit you if you did certain things, but they were basically communicating to you, as my parents communicated to me, that we don't do that kind of thing as members of this family. We have certain standards, certain ways in which we are to live as members of this family, and so that is how you are to behave. And if I violated those behavioral standards, then there would be consequences depending on the severity or the degree of, um, uh, uh, of this, the uh, 
violating their standards. So it just would depend what the consequences would be. But we obey not to gain God's favor. We already have it. We have been given the righteousness of Christ, clothed with it, so that his blessing to us is not based on what we do. It's based on the fact that we possess the righteousness of Christ. But as possessors of the righteousness of Christ, we are in the family of God, and we're to live a certain way. And those are the standards that are set forth for God's children, those who have trusted in him. John 1, 12, as many as received him, to them gave he the power or authority to be called the sons of God. So in this verse, you have uh, three, four commands, watch, stand fast, be brave, and be strong. And I just thought I would bring this out in light of the cultural context of the United States and Western civilization at this point, that the word that the Holy Spirit chose for be brave is not a word that means literally to be brave. It's a metaphorical word. The word is andridzomai. Maybe you know the word androgynous. That first syllable first word there, it's a compound word, is from the Greek word aner, meaning male. So what, what it literally means is act like a man. If we brought it over into the patois of today, we would say, man up. Now that doesn't mean that if you are a woman that you can't do this. It is merely an idiom for being strong, acting like an adult, being mature, and not giving in to weaknesses. So that's the idea there. I just cannot imagine what all of the gender-confused people in our culture would make about this. God would be absolute racist, sexist, and everything else for using language like this. Oh, the world in which we live. So this is the idea. We are strengthened so that we can be strong, so that we can uh, be brave, so that we can have courage in the midst of opposition, threats of death, threats of torture, threats of persecution. Read through church history sometime and, and pick up Fox's Book of Martyrs and read through that, and you would be amazed at how God graciously strengthened so many believers throughout the ages as they faced just unbelievable torture for their, for their faith. So we are to be strengthened with might. Uh, this idea also is communicated, as I pointed out last time, in, in the Psalms. Uh, wait on the Lord, Psalm twenty-seven, fourteen. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Notice it's a strengthening of the mental attitude. That's what heart stands for. It's that which is at the center of your being. You're the inner man, as Paul uses it, in, uses that phrase in this verse. So we are to be strengthened in our mental attitude so that we can stand firm in the day of testing. Uh, be of good courage, Psalm thirty-one twenty-four, and he shall strengthen your heart. See, all these times it's passive. God is the one who does this work in strengthening us. But in the passage, he does this in the church age through his Holy Spirit in the inner man. 
So we looked at what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit's ministries to the believer, and this emphasizes that phrase that it is through the Spirit. He is the agent that God uses, the means he uses in order to... Um, in order to strengthen us. It began with the baptism by the Holy Spirit at salvation, and it continues as we walk by the Spirit and as we are being filled by the Spirit. So I put this chart up here showing, because so many people get confused, that there are permanent ministries of God the Holy Spirit for the believer's life, and then there's uh, one that is a repeated experience for the believer's life. And often these get confused. We are born again. We are regenerated. We are given new life in Titus 3.5. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Titus 3.5. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is talked about in Romans 8, 9, and 11. 1 Corinthians 3.15, do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells within you? So God, the Holy Spirit, dwells within us. We talked about this contextually. It's very important because this concept of dwelling comes to the next section dealing with Christ. And it it is the Holy Spirit who is constructing by the church the corporate entity of the church this new temple, this new building. So he indwells the church corporately, and he indwells each individual uh, believer, every one of us. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. This means that we cannot lose our salvation. It is as if we have God's brand upon us, and it cannot be removed. Now, that doesn't mean we all look like we're owned by God, in the um, back in the old West days in America, in Texas, in the West, uh, when rustlers came along and stole cattle, they would use various tools to change the brand so it would look like the uh, calf or the cow or the steer was owned by someone else. The only way you could tell who really owned the cow was to kill it and skin it and look on the inside, and then you could tell that the brand was changed. Now, there are a lot of believers who are not walking by the Spirit or walking with the Lord, but there was a time in their life when they believed the gospel. They trusted in Christ as Savior. They were made a new creature in Christ and saved eternally. But later on, they succumb to the temptations of the world, and they live a life that is no different from an unbeliever. And it will not be until we are in the presence of God that we, as it were, see that they are truly branded by the sealing of the Spirit. Uh, That's a good modern uh, analogy there. They are Christ's, even though they are living like they are the devil's. And we are sealed by by the Spirit until the day of redemption. We're given spiritual gifts by God the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 11. He is this sovereign executor who distributes the gifts. We're baptized by the Holy Spirit, Romans 6, 1 through, actually that should be Romans 6, 1 through 6, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and uh, uh, other passages of Matthew 3, 11 and 12. Uh, intercession, God the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. All the time. doesn't matter whether you walk in by the Spirit or not. All of these things are true 
all the time for every single believer, obedient, disobedient, whatever your case may be. But there's one that is repeated, and that is being filled by the Spirit. Now, this isn't some mystical thing where we're getting more of the Spirit. That's not what it says. It's not what the grammar allows. But it is the Spirit who is filling us with something. And we see what he's filling us with in the parallel passage of Colossians 3, uh, 15 and 16, that we are being... uh, that, that we are to let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. The results of that command are the same as the results of Ephesians 5.18. So they must be two sides of the same coin. It is the Spirit who is filling us with God's, uh, God's word. So we'll see the same thing about the ministries of Christ to the believer in the church age. So we're strengthened through a spirit in the inner man, which is parallel to what is stated in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts. That's the inner man. Now, this word that is used for inner man here in verse uh, chapter 3, verse 16, is used in numerous passages to talk about being physically inside of a place. We have passages in the Gospels. Uh, especially surrounding the taking of the Lord Jesus Christ, where Peter goes in to the uh, courtyard at the near the Praetorium, uh, Mark four, uh, Matthew twenty six fifty eight, Mark fourteen fifty four. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard, uh, Mark fifteen sixteen. Then the soldiers led him, that is Christ, away into the hall. Uh, and in John twenty twenty six, eight days after his resurrection, his disciples were again inside the upper room. So it has to do with a physical presence of being inside some place. But we also have passages that talk about being in uh, the spiritual inner man, the immaterial part of man. And Romans seven twenty two is a is one case in point where Paul says, For I delight in the law of God according to the inner man. He is talking about his soul. As we see contextually, he's talking about his thinking. Romans 7.23, he says, But I see another law in my members. Notice the contrast between inner man and members. Members are describing the physical body, The inner man is talking about his immaterial nature, his soul and spirit. Uh, He says, The law in my members, and my members are warring against the law of my mind. And here he uses the Greek word nous, which is the word for the thinking part of the soul. Uh, So there's war between his members and the thinking part of his soul. And he says, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my member. So so he's struggling in Romans 7 with how to live the spiritual life. Uh, it's interesting, all of Romans 7 talks about how man on his own can't do it. And he struggles, and he's always got this struggle. He just can't pull it off. And it's not until Romans 8, 1 that you find the first mention of the Holy Spirit. And then... In Romans 8, it talks about the key, which is walking according to the Spirit or walking by the Spirit. And so what we see here in Romans 7.23 is this, this 
struggle that we all go through between our sin nature and often I believe that on passages like this talking about the physical members that it is housed within the genetic structure of our of our bodies uh, physically in some way you, I don't want to tie it to a particular science but in some way that is the location of the sin nature and it brings us into captivity to the law of sin but Romans 7.22, he uses the same phrase, uh, excuse me. So in this passage, 7.22 and 7.23 connects inward man to the mind and contrasts it to the members. So we come to another passage, 2 Corinthians 4.16. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. This is another figure of speech for losing courage, giving up, feeling defeated, discouraged, depressed. Um, So we do not lose heart. Sometime I wish I had enough detail from history to find all of the uh, different people that I have read about, pastors, theologians, significant Christians who struggled with what today we call emotional or psychological problems that you have to deal with with medication. Medication is not the Holy Spirit. One that I've been reading about this week is Martin Luther. He struggled at times with depression. And what did it do? It drove him to the word of God to claim God's promises over and over again. That didn't mean it just disappeared or evaporated overnight, but it was a recognition that this the, we all have areas of weakness in our sin nature, and we don't medicate our sins away. We have to learn to address them through the promises of God. We'll never be perfect, and we have, all have different areas with which we struggle daily. For some people, it's it's phobias, fear anxieties, worry, things of that nature. For other people, it may be, uh, may be depression. For other people, it's different kinds of lust. Everybody's got their different battle. But the solution is always the sufficiency of God's, God's grace. And Paul talks here, he says, that we don't lose heart. Why? Because we keep pressing forward, even though the outer man is perishing, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. Daily reading scripture, daily being reminded of all that God has done for us, daily being reminded of his promises. Romans 12.2 says, connects these together, says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the Greek word noose that we had in Romans 7.23. Uh, the law of the mind, the mind has to be renewed by the word of God, not by the thinking of the world, so that we may demonstrate that God's will is good and perfect and acceptable. Now, the reason or the result from all of this is that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. The words there for through faith are the same words that we have in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the means or the channel by which God's promises are appropriated for the believer. And so this is the result clause, as I pointed out earlier, that Christ would make his home in them. 
The Greek word that is found here is the word katoikeo. This is a compound word. The root is oikeo. Uh, the noun is oikos. Oikos means house. Oikeo means a dwelling. Uh, you have oikeo used in various passages talking about the Holy Spirit dwells in you. It has a wide variety of meanings, and we have uh, these other compound words that are used, uh, such as in oikeo, which is has as a prefix the preposition in, meaning to dwell inside. And we have words like kat oikeo, which is used to mean to to settle down, to fully inhabit, to colonize. Oh, there's a bad word. I, suddenly we're just not politically correct. Christ is going to colonize our hearts. If God says there's certain kinds of colonialism that are appropriate, then you can't just ban it all, can you? Or else God's God's just whatever He is. He's not God. No, this is this is totally. It, it's a great image for us that that in the ancient world, as in the modern world, there would be areas that were unsettled, areas that were undeveloped, areas where uh, there there was not a strong government, and they would be defeated in conquest. It's happened since. Uh, before the flood, it happened after the flood. Nimrod, the great hunter who uh, builds Babel. Uh, war will not stop until Jesus Christ returns at the second coming. That doesn't mean we are we are just ignoring it, but that's the reality. We have to accept the fact that we live in a fallen world. But in the ancient world, they would send in, after they defeated a country, they would send in uh, citizens who would live there, make their home there, and develop it uh, to, there were many of these places, like Philippi was a Roman colony, and there were other places that Paul went that were Roman colonies in Greece, and this was how that culture was changed and influenced to be more like a Roman colony, uh, than their whatever their background was. The same is true for us. Christ indwells us. That's one thing. This is a more. This is the intensified consequences of that indwelling. As we walk with Him, He is transforming us. He is colonizing us, because we are not ultimately citizens of this world. We are citizens of heaven. And so we have to uh, learn to think and act and live as citizens of heaven and not like citizens of this world. And so we are to be, we are inhabited. Christ makes his home in us uh, to colonize us. Well, as we wrap up this morning, because of communion, things went a little longer. I have a chart here. I'll come back and develop this more next time because this takes about 15 minutes to go through this. But I want to build this chart in a similarity to the one I made on the ministries of God the Holy Spirit. There are permanent ministries of Christ in our life that are not affected by our obedience or disobedience. And then there's a repeated uh, emphasis in our life, uh, a repeated uh, 
ministry in our life. The permanent ones are, first of all, that he is the head of the church. He is the head of the body of Christ, as seen in Ephesians uh, 1, to 23. God the Father put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. He is the head. He is our authority. He is the one who is in charge. Now, that doesn't mean we have to make Christ Lord of our life. That is a false statement. He is. Instant you trust Christ as Savior, he's the head. It may take you the next 50 years or 40 years or 30 years or whatever you have left to recognize his authority in different areas of our lives. But that isn't how you become saved. That is the result of salvation. It's what comes afterward. That's the problem. It's not lordship justification. It's recognizing that the Lord is to uh, exercise his authority over every area of our lives. But he is always the authority. He's our high priest. Passages like Hebrews uh, uh, 2.17, 3.1, Hebrews 4.15, Uh, And following all of these various passages are emphasizing the fact that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Hebrews uh, 4.15, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He is our intercessor. Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And uh, he gives gifts in Ephesians 4.8 and uh, Ephesians 4.11, it says uh, that he is the one who gives these gifts. In Hebrews 4.8, Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. You say, well, what about the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit is the, his role is the administration of the gifts and the distribution of the gifts, but ultimately it comes from the Son. Uh, and Ephesians 4.11 says, and he himself, there's an emphasis there. He himself gave some to be apostles, some to be a prophet, some to be evangelists, and some to be a pastor teacher. So he gives gifts. He is our advocate, First John 2, 1 and 2. If anyone sins, we have an advocate in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is the one who stands in our place. He indwells us, Romans 6, 1 through 3, First um, Corinthians 12, 13. Those are wrong, uh, wrong passages. He indwells us. Here we go, the indwelling of Christ. Romans 8.10, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Christ is in you. He indwells each one of us. The Holy Spirit indwells each one of us, and the Father does as well. 2 Corinthians 13.3, since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. That is Christ. He is mighty in you. 2 Corinthians 13.5, do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, but Christ lives in me. 
And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Christ lives in me. And then last, Colossians one twenty seven, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is as all three members of the Trinity indwell us. But that indwelling, while it is permanent, they, they seems to have a facet that increases its spiritual significance in our lives. The Holy Spirit indwells us, but we are commanded to be filled by him. And that has to do with the word of God. We are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, but I mean by God the Son, but when we go to John 15, and we'll come back to look at these passages later, Christ talks about abiding in a way that goes beyond the indwelling presence of Christ. He says uh, in John 15, 1, he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me, and that he's talking about every branch that abides in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. Some translations say he takes away, and that's a misunderstanding uh, some excellent articles have been written by a Dallas Seminary graduate named Gary Derrickson. And what makes it so important is uh, Dr. Derrickson did his ma- uh, undergraduate and master's work at Texas A&M in uh, viticulture, how to grow vines, how to grow grapes for wine. And he has gone back and done the research on how uh, the practice of pruning the grapevines in the vineyards in the Middle East was conducted at the time of Christ. And this word was used to describe where branches that were not getting enough sunshine, not getting enough light would be lifted up so that they could get more light, more uh, nourishment and grow uh, so that they would be stronger and produce fruit the next year. So that, that idea of... Uh, uh, he he um, is, is very clear that it's not that he takes it away. It's that he, what he goes on to say in the rest of the verse, every branch that bears fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And then we have verse 4, which I have in, up on the screen, abide in me and I in you. Well, wait a minute. He has already said that he is going to indwell us. Here he's giving a command that takes it to another level. You abide in me. That's a fellowship concept. And I will abide in you. So this is really what this passage in Ephesians is talking about when when Paul says that the Lord may make his home in you. It goes beyond the indwelling to where there is the Lord is making something more significant in your life where you are reflecting his person and his character. So he says, abide in me and I in you in John 15, 4. And then he says in John 15, 5, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. So this it goes beyond salvation. This is the result of ongoing fellowship. And then uh, there's the thought of discipline in 15.6 for those who do not abide in him. And then 15.7, he introduces a new idea. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. See, there's some kind of connection going on between Paul's prayer that 
May Christ make his home in you, kat oikeo. And what Paul says in Colossians 3.15, may the word of Christ richly dwell within you. See, this connects those two concepts. So it, it, it takes us to a whole new level in understanding the role of Christ in our spiritual life. But we'll have to wait until next week to come back and look at that. If we are Christ's, if we have trusted in Christ, he indwells us, the Spirit indwells us, but our responsibility after that is to let that be enhanced with the Spirit by being filled by means of the Spirit and with Christ by abiding in him and letting his words abide in us. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to Study this passage, dig into it, understand all the intricate connections just laid out in the way Paul structures the prayer. May we come to understand that he's not just praying for the Ephesian believers, he's praying through, through them to all of us, and this is a prayer that we should be praying for ourselves, that, uh, that we might be strengthened in might through the Holy Spirit that we might grow and that Christ may make his home in us. And going on beyond that, that we may fully comprehend your love in our lives, a task that will be uh, still be ours throughout eternity. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us, that we are not supposed to ever reach a stage where we're satisfied with our spiritual growth or spiritual life, but constantly pressing on to spiritual maturity. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here, anyone listening that has never trusted Christ as Savior, that is the command. We are to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, trust in who he is and what he did for us on the cross. Because he is the God-man, he was qualified to die in our place to pay the penalty for our sin that we might have everlasting life. That's all that is necessary. The instant that in our mind we form the thought, that's true, I believe that. That instant we're saved, we don't need to raise a hand, make a commitment. We don't need to commit our lives to Christ, invite Jesus into our heart or any of these other non-biblical concepts. All we are to do, as the Gospel of John says over 95 times, is believe in him, to trust in him and his work, and we will have everlasting life. Father, we thank you for what we have learned today, and we pray that we may be able to apply it in our thinking. In Christ's name, amen.